So we're very much focused at Quantum Black on what we might call augmented intelligence, which has become a bit of a sort of uh, buzzword, but this idea being we should be building technology that augments human performance rather than replaces humans. Um, so we love this idea of the Iron Man suit, you know, building technology that gives humans superpowers rather than replaces humans or reduces human agency. Hello, and welcome to the Meaningful Business Podcast. I'm Peter Stianovich, Deputy Editor at Hot Topics and your host. Together, we're finding out how businesses and their leaders champion purpose, people and planet alongside profit, and in the process, how to define and lead a meaningful business. This episode's guest is Chris Wigley, who is a former British diplomat and now partner at McKinsey and solution partner at Quantum Black, which advises businesses all over the world on how to best implement AI and machine learning. He also regularly talks about the ethics of AI, and it is in this capacity that I am most interested in. The ethics of AI as a conversation hasn't matured nearly as fast as the technology often cautions against. And, as the purposeful business trend continues to march, how can entrepreneurs square using best-in-class tech within positive ethical contexts if they don't know the full impact of those technologies? Well, it's Chris's job to talk to business leaders about that very topic. So, I ask Chris about the ethics of AI. Excellent. Okay, Chris. Well, thank you very much for joining me on the Meaningful Business Podcast. Could you please start with introducing yourself um, and your relationship with AI and machine learning technologies? Absolutely. So, uh, Chris Wigley, I co-lead Quantum Black globally, which is a machine learning boutique that's part of the McKinsey ecosystem. And personally, I studied computer science and medieval history at university, which is an unusual combination, and have done a range of things um, across both tech and other spheres like diplomacy. So before we get into the nitty gritty elements of how businesses should be utilising AI machine learning, can we just start with, from your opinion and your viewpoint, how advanced are these technologies right now? It's a, it's a very interesting question. And it's in order to establish that, it's maybe helpful just to think about a few different types of technology. So one technology that gets a lot of press coverage is what we might call general artificial intelligence, which is something like HAL 9000 from uh, the movie 2001, which um, would pass the Turing test of, um, to another human being. It would, it would seem as though they were talking to, um, to a human and can solve problems in, in any domain. Um, we're, we're a long way away from that. Lots of, lots of experts disagree about how far or um, is there a clear path today. But that's certainly not on the immediate horizon. However, what we might call narrow artificial intelligence, which is using, um, using machine learning and these different techniques to solve problems in a very specific domain, whether that's something like um, identifying what is in an image, um, translating language from um, one language to another, from Chinese to English, from English to Spanish, and so on, um, understanding and interpreting the meaning of text, these kinds of techniques are now actually very mature and deployable. And so, to some extent, there's this debate about um, how much more innovation is coming in artificial intelligence. I'm kind of of the opinion at the moment that even if we don't make any more advances in fundamental research in artificial intelligence, we've got enough work to do for the next decade just to actually deploy at scale the techniques and technologies that have already been proven in the lab. So you think the next challenge really isn't how to 
develop AI machine learning techniques. It's actually how to deploy what we've already got in our existing frameworks. I think maybe they're they're both challenges, um, but they're but they're distinct challenges. I, I'm really excited by the progress on the fundamental research that's happening both in academia and and in some uh, uh, private sector research outfits like uh, DeepMind and others. Um, but I think that um, at the same time, for a lot of large enterprises, whether they're governments um, or, or corporates or social sector organizations, there is so much value to be had just from deploying the technologies that, that already exist today that, um, that that could keep us all going for quite some time. Absolutely. So what, what are um, companies deploying right now? That's one of your main roles, I imagine, is articulating how best individual companies can use the right technology at the right time in the right place. So what are you seeing? What, what's the favorite um, or most appropriate AI technology being utilized at the moment? It's a great question. And I'll maybe start, if it's not too negative, by saying, what do we see going wrong? <laughs> what do we, what, where do we see- companies? No, sure, go ahead. Do we see companies stumbling here? Um, we, we often see large enterprise investing a lot in data for all the right reasons and with all the right intentions that we need to get data in order, have it housed and usable, and, and often this is a multi-year, multi-hundred million uh, pound or dollar or euro um, investment. And if we're not careful, it can be an investment that, that is challenging to get a return on. And so this idea of a hammer looking for a nail, let's invest in the technology around infrastructure and data, and then let's figure out what to do with it, um, is, a, is a common stumbling block. Um, Another that we see, particularly at Quantum Black, where we're, we're known for working very specifically on machine learning and AI technologies, is people come to us and say, well, we want to, we want to do something with machine learning, or we want to be an AI-first company. And we kind of think, well, okay, great, um, but, but why? Um, and so there's this risk of having a vague, um, high-level aspiration to do something in this space without... Um, without a real sense of, um, of, of what that's going to achieve. And so where we always start is with, um, with value creation, with, with performance, which is one of those sort of motherhood and apple pie things um, at first glance. But actually, it's amazing how many um, enterprises out there are, are not doing this. Um, and so that's, that's always where we start. And where we think about performance, we, we try to classify them into things like individual performance, like an, an athlete or a surgeon in a, in a theater um, or a salesperson, or team performance, um, again, a sports team or a, um, an engineering team, a product team, complex system performance, things like clinical trials or uh, transaction systems, um, machine performance, like a, a big machine in a mine or a factory and so on. So these different types of performance, and we'll try and pick a metric there, like uptime for a machine or um, sort of uh, success rates of surgeries or, or whatever it is and then build a data landscape around it, and then think what are the um, analytical techniques we can use to either explain or predict or optimize what's going on here, but always with that really sharp focus on what's the performance goal we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And in your opinion, are the majority of companies ready to be AI first or to implement them? Have they got the right core competencies there to build AI on top of it? I think all companies are ready to get going in this space. Um, and often people that we talk to feel like, oh, well, you know, because we're not a cutting edge biotech company or because we're not a, a digital native company, you know, we can't do anything. And we, and we definitely disagree with that. Um, the, the sort of a bit of a, a running joke internally, but the, the black part of Quantum Black was always this idea that we should be like the sort of uh, black ops troops that jump out of a helicopter and can, you know, find the data, build the models 
um, achieve goals um, in any environment. Um, and we work with tons of clients who have either grown through acquisition or have been in and out of different ownership and who have very messy data, and, and that's fine. And so we're big believers in the data and the infrastructure only has to be good enough um, to, to get going. It doesn't have to be perfect. Hmm. Equally. Okay, so that sort of test and learn. Yeah, exactly. You know, makes sense as well. But yeah. I think the challenge is often how do you go from, um, from pilots and from experimentation to actually deploying these technologies at scale. And that, that's very much where the infrastructure, the, the reliability of the data and so on becomes, um, becomes much more critical. But everyone should feel like they can get going. And you said earlier about how you're excited about some of the research coming from, you know, Google DeepMind or, or, or from universities. Is there a large discrepancy between the AI within research programs and the AI that companies want to use? They're often focused on quite different things. So whether it's um, research that's being done in a, in a corporate environment or in, a, in an academic environment, um, they're often trying to solve fundamental problems around um, around AI um, and and moving towards um, towards general intelligence. But each of those teams are often working on a very niche um, problem. So, um, for example, the explainability of AI. Can we take um, neural network models or deep learning models, which have traditionally been kind of black box models, where it's difficult to understand why they're making the, the predictions they're making, um, and start to crack that open and explain which of the which of the features, which of the elements of the data are actually driving those predictions. Um, that's, that's something which a lot of research work is being done on at the moment. Um, and in itself, it's, that sounds quite obscure to most enterprises who are trying to do something with that. But then when you can combine it with um, a real-world application, like, for example, if someone is applying for a loan, um, they might get turned down for the loan on the back of um, uh, the outcome of an algorithm running on some data. And they might well want to understand why they've been turned down for that loan. Um, or why they're being recommended for a particular kind of surgery or whatever. And so being able to explain to someone, well, you've been turned down for this loan, and if they say why, you can say, well, it's because um, your income is X, and then actually if your income was uh, slightly higher, you would be approved, or because of this thing in your credit history. Um, so being able to explain the rationale behind decisions that are coming out of these models can sound like a sort of niche abstract thing, but then finding um, finding real world applications for those is um, is very much the trick. Interesting. And if we look at Quantum Black specifically now, so uh, an organisation will approach you saying that they want to implement AI or want to AI first, as you put it. What are the next steps? What do you ha- at Quantum Black have to do in order to ensure that they're the right company that you want to Absolutely. work with? Absolutely, it's a tricky one because we're we're always doing experimental work, um, and we're often kind of work with our clients to solve problems that lots of clever people have been looking at for a long time, um, but using new techniques and, and new approaches. And so we have to have a very experimental um, approach. And because of that, we have to have a very um, agile deployment methodology. And, and agile is a word that gets overused and, and in many cases abused. But broadly, what we mean by that is that we're not committing up front to, um, to a plan or to a series of outcomes. We're committing up front to a process whereby we and the client teams that we work very closely with are, are learning very rapidly and are evolving our thinking and are, and are building technologies in a, in a highly iterative way um, to get somewhere. So that, can be, that sounds a little abstract. What does that mean in practice? Um, we often start with some kind of workshop. That could be a day or it could be a week where we get the relevant folks in a, in a room, start thinking about where is the value. We start thinking about where, what are the data sets that we can map um, against those performance metrics. We start thinking about just very practically, um, do, we ha- do we have access to the data? Is there an environment where we can work? And get all of that um, preliminary 
thinking out of the way together where and we should come out of that with a sense of is there something here to go after that is that is valuable and and viable um and we'll then to to your point we'll then very much go into a due diligence phase we'll start looking at the data sets you know are they are they complete um is there sufficient volume can we see a path to an analytical approach that we think could work and then we'll have a go no go decision um and based on those same factors you know is is there enough value do we have the right conditions for success um and if we do then we'll then we'll kick off um start start modeling start ingesting data at scale start modeling um start pushing those models into production start thinking about how users uh work although we we often actually start with that right at the beginning um with a with our sort of user experience design team um and um we're typically in fortnightly cycles there where we'll um we'll frame some questions or or an experiment we'll we'll start looking at the data building models um and then figure out what we've learned and then move into another sort of sprint cycle and and we kind of take it from there so we we try to be very uh very iterative um rather than coming in with a big Excellent. kind of top down plan up front yeah sure sure so what have you learned um during all of these experimentation phases anything that's been very surprising i think we sort of joke about um we we know we have two rules rule 1 is we need a plan and rule 2 is the plan will be wrong um and <laughs> so i think what we've learned um that um we need to have we talk about um a protocol so we we think of a protocol as being a combination of um people and technology and process and actually where we can bring um a, a scalable process um with technology to enable it and with people who know what they're doing um it becomes much more powerful that that this repeatability is is very much a scaling um device both for ourselves and also for the for the clients that we work with so we're we're big believers in um structure enabling creativity rather than structure kind of crushing creativity Mm, interesting. Now we've managed to go over 10 minutes without talking about ethics in AI, which I think might be a record in any AI conversation ever. Um obviously as a company that works specifically with these emerging technologies, you clearly have to have a lot of ethical considerations and protocols when when dealing with this. So, I mean, one of the most um abundantly clear is that there's still there's a lot of bias within AI. Clearly that's because of the human um articulation of AI often. So, what's your um a position on eliminating bias or, or reducing it um to meaningless yeah absolutely it's a, it's a, it's an area which we are um focused on pretty much every day in our work as you as you say um one of the ways that we find helpful to think about it is um at a at a thematic level um kind of three levels the first question, the first level is bias right and and we face issues of bias where um a data set that we're working on doesn't reflect the actual uh population that it's um that it's being applied to um and so for example there have been instances of um image recognition algorithms being trained on um the on pictures image data sets which contain mostly white males and that means that they're much less good at recognizing um women they're much less good at recognizing people of color um and can uh misclassify them and so that is both offensive um and uh, inappropriate but it's and it's also wrong um and you know and if you just on a, a, a performance basis it's also wrong so these these things are, are ethical issues they're also performance issues so that that bias issue comes in um when the data set doesn't reflect the real population there's then maybe at a higher level a question about fairness even if the data set does reflect the population um 
do we actually want to move from a historical world where certain things were true into a future world where different things are true? Um, and um, topics like, let's say, CV screening um, could be a good example of this. If we've historically hired um, mostly male engineers into engineering roles, a machine learning algorithm will look at that historical data and say, oh, the top performing engineers have all been men, so we should hire more men. And actually, you might say, well, actually, we want to live in a world in the future which is different to the world of the past. And so we don't just want to have a vanilla interpretation of that data set. We want to consciously introduce a bias in order to achieve a, a better outcome, in, in order to achieve a fairer outcome. And you can see that in a ton of other areas like um, uh, judicial sentencing, uh, parole, um, immigration applications, all, all, sorts of, um, all sorts of domains. And, and so there, we need to get upstream of the data and the modeling and think about what are we actually trying to achieve here um, before we then um, figure out how, what data sets we need to bring in and, and how we may need to um, effectively tip the scales so that the future doesn't look like the past if, if we don't like what the past looks like. I think the third level is then um, is just ethics, like should we do this? Um, you know, and there's a lot of debate about you know, machine, machine vision for autonomous drones or, or whatever it is. That we should always be asking the question, should we do this? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the critical point. There are so many applications. It's very difficult for one individual or one company um, to say whether one should go through this or not. You know, the law of unintended consequences comes into mind. Um, so that's what you just spoke about, sort of um, looking at diversity and making sure that that creates fairness and reduces bias within a particular organisation, normally um, to improve the efficacy of, of a solution or a, top, or a, or a product. And which, are, which is very sort of sometimes company specific. When you think of ethics in AI machine learning, and we also think of those wider remits, so, you know, what happens after or during, as we see, automation. So you've got a wider a net of people having their job shifted, and we're looking sort of how do we distribute wealth created after automation. Are those considerations also spoken about um, with your clients or within the wider um, search of AI and, and should they? Absolutely. So they, they should absolutely be um, in scope. And I think that, that um, we might say second order or third order consequences of these kinds of te technology decisions, we firmly believe are, are a core part of um, a leader's responsibility these days. You know, that it's not, it's not good enough to think only of the first order consequences. Um, and, you know, in, in a case, like you mentioned, of, um, of process automation, the first order consequence might be, great, we've, we've reduced cost. Um, but then the, the second and third order consequences, both for individual human beings and their families and also for um, society at large, um, are often critical and I think have to be taken into account. Um, there's that famous quote that I love from um, someone was visiting, I think it was the Ford factory, uh, or no, sorry, Ford was visiting another car factory where they were introducing automation um, and robots to build the cars. And um, Ford said, okay, great, but at the end of the month, who's going to buy, you know, where are the workers who are going to buy your cars? <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's very that, true. Um, you know, we've got a, we're yeah, if, the robots are the, if the robots are the ones yeah. who are doing the work and earning the salary, then who's going to buy the cars? <laughs> exactly. Um, a post-labor economy and, you know, you've got that dichotomy between not paying and, and, and not working and, it, it, is there sometimes do you find there's like a short-sightedness to these tech solutions whereby it's we need to be more efficient in x so let's do that and then there's focus on the ethics or the considerations in the medium term which is sometimes too late i think that what i've really been struck by actually is that even over the course of my working career which is not that long there has been a real sea change in this um and 
pretty much all of the conversations that we have um, with potential clients or actual clients about these kinds of technologies, we will, as a group, absolutely be discussing these kinds of consequences um, and thinking it through. So we're very much focused at Quantum Black on what we might call augmented intelligence, which has become a bit of a sort of uh, buzzword. But this, the basic idea being we should be building technology that augments human performance rather than replaces humans. Um, so we love this idea of the Iron Man suit, you know, building technology that gives humans superpowers rather than, you know, uh, replaces or, or reduces, replaces humans or reduces human agency. Um, but in some cases, um, there are, uh, and, in, and in many cases, that's exactly what we're, um, what we're doing. In some cases, we're creating technology which takes a lot of the boring parts out of people's jobs. So often we think about things in binary terms. Are we replacing this person or not? It's one or a zero. Um, whereas what we find more often in practice is that, um, for example, classifying adverse effects um, of drugs in pharmaceutical. A big pharma company will have millions and millions of um, doctor's reports coming in every year saying this patient was on this drug and they had a headache. Um, and then they have to classify that and log it um, in order to understand the impact that their medication is having in the real world. Um, at the moment, human beings do that and it's, um, it's very labor intensive and quite boring. And then they have to um, try and figure out the patterns across all of that. Actually putting in a natural language uh, programming um, algorithm that can uh, natural language processing algorithm, sorry, that can um, that can do some of the heavy lifting on that, and can either also classify it if it's an easy one, or can recommend to the human here are the top three things that that we think it could be. Massively speeds up the the heavy lifting on the boring piece and allows the human beings to actually focus on the so what. You know what is what is this telling us? Um, and so that that kind of disaggregation of roles into the boring repetitive pieces which can better be done by a human being, by a machine, sorry, and then freeing up the human being to do the more um, kind of large frame pattern recognition um, or creative or sort of thoughtful work um, is actually something that we see quite a lot of. Mm. So it's more of a, so more of a partnership um, feature rather than a replacement. Mm. Um, looking at, so, so looking at your client base and, and thinking that Quantum Black is part of the McKinsey family, um, with different size organisations, let's say a startup that has a founder who wants to implement AI very, very early on, or a very well-established organization that um, looks back and think, actually, we need to in, in sort of put this forward uh, now that we are established. Is there a difference in how they approach um, these technologies and, and specifically the ethics of these considerations? What I haven't seen is that smaller, earlier stage organizations versus bigger organizations have necessarily a different take it's not like one group thinks more about ethics and another thinks less. Um, I think that a startup obviously has advantages in the form of um, agility, speed, the ability to experiment at low cost and, and learn quickly and, and move fast, um, and often doesn't need enormous resources to get things off the ground because they're doing it in um, a more uh, kind of hacky and MVP kind of way, which is, which is fine at that early stage of a startup. Um, but lacks um, the sort of um, industrialization capabilities of a large organization or lacks the big data sets. Um, whereas the, the big organizations often have more um, structural stakeholders they need to bring along with them, whether that's kind of legal or um, IT or whatever, um, but which can slow things down, um, but have the, the benefit of um, both a lot of experienced leadership um, who can and make good calls on things like um, ethics questions, 
um, and also the, the customer base, the capital base, the, the data um, assets to actually really do things at scale. Mm. I think the reason I asked that previous question is because there's um, an assumption sometimes that big tech is slightly worse at the ethical considerations. When we look at Google and Project Dragonfly, for example, which for anybody listening who's not aware of it, is a, is a plan to develop a censored search engine for China. Um, even though you know Google has promised not to um, deploy tech that contravenes human rights, um, they also. But on the, on the flip side, they've also said that they wouldn't sell facial recognition services to governments, whereas you know Amazon, AWS, or, or Microsoft have done so. So you've got a discrepancy and a disparity between big tech uh, companies um, with with larger power. Uh, one would say with these technologies. So does that um, complicate things for your industry? when you have these different um, ethical considerations um, being thrown around and, and different companies um, agreeing to them or not? It's, it's a fantastic question. I think that we're in a phase now where what I'm excited by is the fact that all of these large organizations are having these debates. Um, we're talking about it on this podcast. Um, I think we're still in a really nascent stage of knowing what the right answer is. There will always be, um, there will always be nuances and there will also be big differences in um, perspectives in different societies. So to take a, an example that you raised around, um, for example, facial recognition software, London is the most uh, surveilled city in the world. I think it certainly used to be last time, last time I read anything about this, CCTV cameras per head of population than anywhere else on earth um, in London. Um, and everyone in London thinks that's perfectly normal because we're all used to it. There's used to be cameras everywhere, you know, the IRA in the 80s and, you know, everyone, everyone's used to, through to, you know, the more recent uh, security threats and so on. Everyone's just used to that being part of life. Whereas in some other European countries, people say, what are you talking about? You can't just put CCTV in the street and surveil people. Um, equally, um, talking to friends, colleagues, um, uh, other people I've met in um, places like China or, or other places where they would say, of course we should have uh, machine learning that is looking at this imagery because we can optimize traffic flows, um, we can spot criminals. Um, this makes society a much better place. Um, you know, why are you so squeamish? Whereas often um, in other uh, parts of the world, people say, well, of course, we shouldn't have um, machine learning applied to, um, you know, mass surveillance systems because um, it's bad for society and so on. So it's, these things are very, um, they're very uh, difficult questions to resolve um, uh, like deterministically, um, and the the right answer is that we keep on, that we have the transparency over what organizations and individuals are doing, um, and that both as organizations and as societies, we keep having this debate. So at Quantum Black, we put in a board level member, a, a board level uh, role in 2015, which is our chief trust officer. Um, and and we've, we've had that role there ever since because trust is just existential for us. Um, and that's really about forcing the debate the whole time. Um, is, is this course of action or that course of action likely to increase or decrease trust um, in us? And that, that, um, that's a good way for us of kind of forcing the debate internally. Excellent. So, so if you had, not necessarily a singular piece of advice, but some, some key bits of advice for anybody listening who was a startup founder or you know, any kind of founder who um, was thinking of implementing AI machine learning to their company for whatever reason, what would the top three things be um, to recommend them do? Um, great question. So I think that one is to really think about um, both what are the values that 
you as a leadership team, as an organization, really stand for. So that's 1A. It's going to really go through an exercise of writing that down and making it as concrete and, um, and tangible as possible. Um, the 1B, I think, is then how can you translate those values um, into elements that are very everyday parts of the working lives of the people in your organization? And so to take a concrete example, um, we talked earlier about bias in algorithms. This is obviously something that's a big deal for us. This is what we do all day. Um, we have a lot of values around trust um, and around doing the right thing, um, which we've articulated. And, but we've then taken the, the second step of trying to translate those into process steps. Okay, we know that when we're selecting features for a model, there are a series of checks that the teams have to go through to make sure that they're um, challenging themselves around, uh, are we being biased in the feature selection we're doing? And you can apply that at any stage of the, um, the whole life cycle. You know, have we acquired the data ethically? Um, where do we understand that? Blah, blah, blah all the way through to how is this running in production and so on. So we can, we can build these uh, values that risk seeming uh, theoretical into very concrete kind of process or technology steps in, in, a, um, in, a, in an organization. Or that could be another tangible thing is building it into recruiting, right? What are the characteristics we look for in people who we want to hire? And how do we test for things like trust or, um, uh, or uh, having a focus on the right, the right kind of topics? Actually, we can ask these questions in an interview. And so I think until you can draw a line between the high-level values that you articulate and the, the processes and systems that operate at kind of at the coalface in an organization, you probably you need to keep sharpening until you get there. Sure. So, so what I think you're that, saying that would is... be my big one or two. <laughs> so what you're saying is there are countless things to consider. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, before 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 we um, we sort of close the interview, because it'd be great to sort of learn more about yourself and, and how you got to where you are today. Because obviously, well, not obviously, you actually had an interesting route. You've come to technology through international diplomacy. Um, so, I mean, could you quickly just sort of summarise why you chose that path? Yeah. So, I, my standard line on this is that I, I treat career more as a verb than as a noun, <laughs> and um, I've, I've I've done a a real mix of things. Um, and so back in the day at university, as I mentioned right at the top of the, of the interview, I did um, computer science and um, history, which I think was a great, um, a great mix. And at that point, my flatmate and I um, started up a, um, a very small scale uh, sort of tech startup in the first um, dot-com boom around um, building websites and some back-end stuff for small and medium um, companies. We were based up in um, up in Scotland, so we ended up building a lot of websites um, involving tartan. So if you, if you ever need anyone to uh, build a tartan website, I'm, I'm your man. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that, that kind of um, <laughs> we sort of um, that crashed out as uh, so many startups did at the in the dot com uh, boom and bust. Um, I then did a couple of years at McKinsey um, after that, just doing a range of things. Um, was then at the BBC doing analog to digital uh, broadcasting. So going from a couple of um, TV stations and a, a few radio uh, channels to uh, radio player, then on to uh, iPlayer and so on. So that, that transition. Um, went from there to diplomacy, which was always a sort of itch that I wanted to scratch, just having studied history a bit. Um, and everyone always, it's interesting, everyone always says, oh my God, how on earth do you get into um, diplomacy? That's amazing. And the, the boring answer is, you fill in a form for the civil service and you apply for the job. Um, and it's, it was as, uh, as straightforward as that. Um, and then after a few a uh, postings, <laughs> so, exactly, no, it's a, it's a total mystery. No, there's, like, there's a website, you fill in the form. Um, and um, 
so I did a couple of postings in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and um, and Bosnia. And then my wife and I decided we um, wanted to move back to the UK. Um, so then came back to McKinsey and kind of grew up doing tech stuff there. And then um, led the acquisition of Quantum Black for McKinsey um, back in 2015. And so I joined Quantum Black as employee about 30 um, and following the transaction. And so we've grown over the last three years from 30 people to about 400 people. Um, opened a lot of offices around the world. Um, and so we've gone through that sort of period of, of explosive growth over the last few years. Just like that. <laughs> so, I mean, penultimately, the, yep, the whole podcast is, <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is looking at sort of meaningful or purpose-driven businesses. So do you have um, a, a working definition for a purpose-driven business? Um, or do you have any, what, what are your thoughts on what a meaningful business should look like today? I think there's a lot about, um, we've, we've talked a lot about are we a values-driven business, which I think is, is, is critical. Um, and a big part of that is who are the people that I'm working with day-to-day and are they people whose values I share and who I enjoy spending time with and so on. We have a big um, focus at Corner Black about people being their authentic selves. You know, we're, we're incredibly diverse in terms of academic background, in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of nationality, in terms of academic discipline and so on. And so we're, we're really keen that everyone kind of remains quirky and, and we hate this idea of kind of game face that people feel like they need to put on a kind of work persona. Um, so I think all of that stuff is, um, is really important. But I think there's also a, um, a meta point about what are the problems that we're working on um, and, and are they meaningful um, you know, in the world today? Um, there was a, a blog post from um, Azim Azar, who's a, who's a friend and who does the um, Exponential uh, View newsletter and podcast. Um, where he was saying, you know, what what the world needs now is not more um, kind of refined forms of social social influencer marketing or whatever or whatever. You know, what we need are scalable companies that are addressing problems in climate change, um, in uh, clean energy, in um, healthcare, and in neuroscience. You know, um, and I couldn't agree more. I think that the actual substance of the problems that you're working on or the opportunities that you're working on um, is really important. And for us, that's been a big part of the. Um, ability to attract talent into Quantum Black is that we can say to people, you can come here and you can work on really interesting problems that are really going to have an impact at scale. And whether that's getting drugs to market faster, that are going to save lots of people's lives, um, whether that's reducing the energy footprint of um, some heavy industrial processes so that they use two-thirds as much energy as they used to use. Um, we're doing a piece at the moment on um, trying to um, address issues around uh, human trafficking. Um, there, are, there are all sorts of very, very meaningful things that um, our teams are working on where they can actually really see the impact of that in the real world, which has been a big part of our ability to you know, get people excited about, about working with us. So I think it's both good, for, it's both good per se, and, and it's also, I think, being a purpose-driven organization is increasingly critical um, in a world where we have such a purpose-driven generation, which I think is fantastic. But, you know, the, the people that we're hiring are often in their sort of late 20s, early 30s, and, and they're so purpose-driven, which I think is brilliant and is, and is much more so than when I was in my late 20s. Um, and I think that's a fantastic thing. But that creates an impetus on us to be able to um, work on topics that excite them. Absolutely. And finally, um, to continue this conversation about AI and ethics, and maybe even just meaningful business, who would you recommend I invite on to the podcast? Great question. Um, I think on the sort of meaningful business piece and um, the, you know, how can we be our best selves at work? Um, I don't know if you know Caroline Webb, but she's the author of um, How to Have a Good Day and, and various other things. Um, she's been a, a huge influence on me in terms of 
um, purpose at work, um, being a purpose-driven uh, leader, and so on. I think she and she's uh, fantastic. Um, we're also on the on the AI theme. Um, Alice Bentink, who's one of the co-founders of um, Entrepreneur First, I think is doing extraordinary things, um, bringing um, young talent into the world of um, AI and, and really helping build um, an extraordinary series of, um, of highly purpose-driven companies in the sort of AI and machine Excellent. learning space. Chris. So two for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always love those deals. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, Chris, and uh, look forward to seeing what McKenzie and Quantum Black get up to in the future. Thanks so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Daniel Mittler, the political director for Greenpeace International, based in Berlin, Germany. With Daniel, we'll be finding out the charity's perspective of the meaningful business trend, how it's challenging decades-old relationships between NGOs and governments, and whether it is time for charities to adapt to a new world of conscious capitalism. <laughs> <laughs>